Hello everyone and welcome to Space Spiels. My name is Paige Kaufman and I am an undergraduate astronautical engineering student at the University of Southern California. On this podcast, we will talk about all things aerospace. We will discover how people got where they are in industry and their experience of the culture and community on the way. Enjoy. Hello everyone. We have the most exciting episode today because we have our first ever astronaut on the podcast this week. Today we are talking with Dr. Garrett Riesman. Dr. Riesman attended the University of Pennsylvania for his undergraduate degree and then he attended Caltech where he received his PhD in 1997. He then was selected as a mission specialist astronaut candidate at NASA in 1998. His first mission was in 2008 when he flew on the Space Shuttle Endeavor, which is across from my college campus, which is awesome. And he spent 95 days on the International Space Station, where he then flew aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery to come home. His next mission was in 2010, and he flew aboard the Space Shuttle Atlantis. Dr. Riesman has performed three spacewalks, operated the space station robot arm, and was a flight engineer aboard the space shuttle. He also was an aquanaut. He served as a crew member on Nemo 5, living on the bottom of the sea in the Aquarius Deep underwater habitat for two weeks. This was in the portion where he was an astronaut candidate, but was not sent up to space yet. You'll hear more about that in today's podcast. He then left NASA in early 2011 and joined Elon Musk at SpaceX, where he served in multiple capacities, most recently as the director of space operations. He then stepped down from his full-time position at SpaceX in May of 2018, and in June of 2018, he became a professor of astronautical engineering in the Viterbi School at the University of Southern California. He also continues to support SpaceX as a senior advisor. So quite the resume of Dr. Riesman here. I am currently performing research with his PhD candidate, Ulu, and Dr. Riesman is our PI. So I've had a lot of fun doing some human factors research with them, and it's been amazing. And it was even more amazing that Dr. Riesman agreed to give me some of his time today and talk to me on the pod. So this was an amazing conversation. We get into his relationships with the astronauts he flew with, how astronauts handle arguments, how he made these tough decisions to leave incredibly prestigious positions. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and I'll talk to you in a second. Okay, I'm going to start with a question that I'm sure you've answered many times, but we're breaking the ice. So did you always want to be an astronaut and what sparked your interest in space did i always want to be an astronaut yes i always wanted to be an astronaut uh thing is i never thought i could right so um when i was a little kid i was fascinated with space i used to watch films of the apollo missions um uh when i was in elementary school we hadn't launched a space shuttle yet so i was watching these old films of like apollo 11 and i loved it and i thought it was fantastic but here's the problem I have is that I had this mom who's scared of flying. And I don't mean like <laughs> flying on a rocket. I mean like flying like on United. Okay. So uh, the, the, the all those guys in those Apollo missions, they were all test pilots. And, and th- this is my take 
kind of on representation from a different angle. And that is that I didn't see anybody that looked like me uh, up there flying to the moon. They were all test pilots and I was not going to be a test pilot. So, right. you know, it's really hard to imagine being something that you don't see. And so I thought, well, that's not for me. I'm not going to be an astronaut. I was still uh, very interested in STEM fields and, and, you know, engineering and science. And so, and, and, but if you asked me in high school, what I wanted to be when I grow up, I probably would have said engineer, maybe, maybe physician. I was thinking about uh, going into medicine for a while. So that would have been my answer, not astronaut. And then yeah. what really changed everything was when I was in college and uh, I was at uh, the end of my undergraduate years and I saw some bios of the people NASA had just selected and they mm -hmm. were, um, they were not all test pilots. There were some uh engineers and scientists in there and physicians so i thought wow you know maybe this actually is within the realm of possibility and and i and i saw people that looked like me uh doing this job and so that changed everything interesting yeah it does make a big impact so in making it attainable i saw on your website you mentioned there's a physics teacher and a coach a wrestling coach That's that right. helped you get have faith in yourself. So could you tell the stories kind of around those? I wanted to hear more about that. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, nobody pulls off something like this by themselves. It takes a lot of support and help along the way. And I had a lot of people that were integral to helping me get reach the, the, this uh, goal. And, you know, and, and, and two of the biggest ones were um, my physics teacher and my wrestling coach. There are many others too. My parents, I have to give them a lot of credit, and and uh, other teachers and and uh, professors, and my my PhD advisor at Caltech. So there are a lot of them, but those two in particular were there at a pivotal, uh, a, 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 a you know, a formative time, I guess I should say. And and uh, my my physics teacher in high school, his name was Jerry Vandervoort, and he was fantastic. You know, he really just. Uh, I just fell in love with the with physics in general as a result of of the way he taught the class, and um, and the same the same way. And my wrestling coach was also really important because he taught me like a certain work ethic and uh, you know how to and and interpersonal skills. How I was captain of the team, how to be a good leader, but also before I was a captain, how how to be a good follower. So a lot of those skills that they taught me back in high school were, were really like important things to being an astronaut. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I was learning some really valuable life lessons. And, and it's so important at, at that age, especially, you know, some, one good teacher could have such a big impact, um, uh, positively or negatively. You know, uh, I, I was... Uh, uh talking with with some of the, the I, i'm jumping ahead a little bit probably but I, I i was talking this last weekend with some of the executive producers on the tv show i'm working for for all mankind and they talked about a high school uh uh, uh english teacher that that like got them on this lifelong love of writing uh yeah. and and led them through their careers and it just seems like so many people have stories like that about that that right. uh, actually and, and actually actually you, you know, the other one was ron moore uh, who is who was the creator uh, of of this show for all mankind? But he also was the showrunner and creator for Outlander, Battlestar Galactica, the reboot. He's also oh. the head writer on Star Trek: Next Generation. So he's a really impressive guy. And he told me at that dinner just a couple nights ago in New York City that um, 
his the, his his band teacher, the 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 fellow that ran the the marching band at his high school was the one that really had the strongest influence on him, uh, and and in fact. He, he started working on a documentary uh, about that that band and, and more importantly that band leader uh and um and that that his son is actually finishing up that documentary right now and hopefully will be available for broadcast so um it seems like all of us have that have that story and it's and, and it really is so important but then there's also the antithesis of that story which is the one teacher that almost you know cratered you <laughs> or, or in, in many cases, uh, did discourage people from pursuing a certain path. And that can be really corrosive and toxic. And I have that story too. So, um, so you know, it is, it, it, it is, it's amazingly important. Yeah, absolutely. I need to send me the marching band one when it comes out, I'll share it with my friends and I'll have to watch it, watch party for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and when people ask me what my favorite class is, it all depends on the professor. Like mm. always, whenever I... I'm asked. So definitely true. So did you, what did you do outside of school when you were at UPenn? Did you, were you still wrestling? Did you do uh, get hands-on experience? What were you up to outside of classes? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, Penn, um, I was on the wrestling team, but it wasn't very good. Uh, (laughs) 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 yeah. So it's, it's a long story. I'll try to make this brief, but uh, when I got to Penn, it, they were going through a transition, and the coach that I, that I I wouldn't say he recruited me, but I spoke to uh, before I came to Penn was kind of a laid back guy. He was a former Olympian, but he was still pretty chill, and it was almost like a club sport rather than a. They weren't very competitive, and the day the, the day I arrived uh, as a freshman it was the same day that they they started a new coach. And this guy was a, a young, you know, ambitious coach. And he started recruiting uh, top wrestlers from around the nation. So we had people coming from like, like Iowa and the Oklahoma State champions and like these really, really good wrestlers were coming into the room. And all of a sudden, this wasn't just like this kind of club sport. All of a sudden, this was a, hey, let's go win an NCAA championship team. And uh, and I was getting pummeled, <laughs> which is <was> very painful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh yeah like you can play tennis and get beat really badly and it doesn't you still don't walk away with right. the same kind of physical pain <laughs> so so this was yeah. this was tough and uh i got injured uh and i had my uh meniscus repaired with a arthroscopic surgery that kind of ended my freshman se- season short and then i started yeah. coming back in my sophomore year but then i decided it it just wasn't worth it and uh and i and that was the end of my wrestling career so you know i never made it to the- <laughs> wwe or (laughs) never or the olympics or anything so that was pretty short-lived but then i did other things i was um i was on our i I was involved with my fraternity and on the interfraternity council so i was actually president of the the ifc uh at penn uh through some pretty tumultuous times and uh and then i and then for my senior project i built a solar powered car and that was uh that that took a lot of my effort and time uh so yeah. yeah that was pretty cool that was a cool project yeah awesome I think life balance is super cool and finding out like what people do in their free time while still being high achievers obviously because then you got into Caltech casually and how did you choose was there a gap between 
uh, undergrad and your PhD? And how did you choose that, like, getting a PhD was for you? Yeah, that's interesting. So th- there was a summer uh, in between, but oh, I, wow, I pretty, you went yeah, right I pretty much went right in. Uh, I had an internship the summer bef- between Penn and Caltech. I had an internship here in uh, over uh, for Hughes Aircraft. Uh, rocket uh, missile group uh, over in Canoga Park. It's not there anymore. Uh, But I went over there for a summer. Um, And that really confirmed that I was making the right decision. So this was 19... Oh, man, I'm old. This was 1991 when this was happening. Okay. And And that was right at the end of the Cold War, or we thought it was the end of the Cold War anyway. It seems to be coming back these days. But anyway, um, the... uh, The, we had, you know, a big wind down in, in aerospace. It was um, a period of contraction. And so it wasn't a great time to be going out and starting a job in aerospace. And I was looking around and I was, I was doing this internship and they offered me a position, a full-time higher position because I was young and cheap and had, you know, the latest technology, but, but I didn't have, you know, I was doing, going to earn a starting level salary. But I'm looking around me and all these uh, kind of older engineers that had mortgages and kids to put through college, they were being laid off. And it was just such a depressing. And I felt like I was kind of taking one of their spots. And it was just a really depressing place to be at that point in time. Yeah. And so I said, well, and also it was a point of contraction. So it wasn't like there were a lot of great career opportunities and 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 it wasn't like business was booming and there was plenty of opportunities. So I looked around and said, well, you know, and I was thinking about getting an advanced degree anyway, because I really enjoyed that. I was actually a dual degree as an undergraduate uh, business and, and engineering. And I gravitated oh. a lot more towards the technical side of things. And I wanted to do, take that further. So I already had in my mind this idea of going for a PhD and doing research uh, and really trying to push the boundaries of knowledge. I thought that would be really fun. And on top of that, I was like, well, the timing isn't good to be starting a, a career in industry. So maybe I go get this PhD and then maybe uh, at the end of that, uh, uh, I'll be in a better position to do to go back into industry. Maybe the dust will settle and things will be uh, better in industry. And at the same time, maybe with this additional credential, I could do more interesting work in industry. So that was my thought process at the time. And, and that's why I ended up going to grad school. Yeah, sounds like a clear decision in your head for that many reasons that made it make sense yeah i actually made it before that internship but but if i had any doubts about whether or not i made the right decision when i got to that internship i i realized oh this was the right call (laughs) yeah yeah um and then after you got your phd did you go straight to nasa no uh so once i finished up with that phd i i got a job at uh, trw which is now part of Northrop Grumman, right here in, in uh, well, right there in uh, yeah. in Redondo Beach at the Space Park uh, facility. So I started working there as a as a GNC engineer, guidance navigation control, and I was working on a, 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 pro, a, a I didn't have my security clearance yet, and and most of the stuff they were doing there was actually the the, the top secret stuff. But but what they do with you when you don't have your clear when you're waiting for your clearance is they they give you a nice nasa job to work on so i was was working on a a satellite uh an earth observing satellite for nasa we called it eos pm1 at the time but it became aqua uh and and it's still up there uh taking really good data yeah yeah still working so i i designed uh 
some of the control uh, um, some of the control algorithms for all the thruster based control modes of the spacecraft. So I, I did that work and did all the stability analysis and and picked the gain sets and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and then so I did that for about a year and a half or so, and then uh, I got the call from NASA while while I was an employee there. Wow. Awesome. Did you wave to the that satellite when you went up there? <laughs> yeah, nah, you know, first of all, it's in the sun synchronous polar orbit. So if it's <laughs> going by the window, it'd be going by really fast. And uh, is that also significantly higher altitude? So yeah, no, I, I didn't right. I didn't wave to it, but uh, I I'll tell you one funny story about it. So yeah. uh the, the the administrator of NASA at the time was a, a person by the name of Dan Golden. And before becoming okay. the NASA administrator, he was a, a senior vice president, I think senior vice president, at uh, at TRW. And so, oh. uh, so he came to NASA before I did, but but only by a few months. So oh I showed God. up there, and uh, I'm a new astronaut, and uh, it's a long story, but I was, I ran into him, uh, in in like the hallway, and I'm wearing my TRW shirt. And we started talking. I introduced myself. I'm some one of your new astronauts, and you know, and and I just want you to know, I'm not wearing this shirt uh, because I just I, I didn't wear the shirt to suck up to you. I I, I didn't even know I was going to meet you today. And uh, <laughs> he laughed, and he said, "Well, he asked me what I did at TRW, and I said, "Well, I I was working on the Aqua satellite, and I had to tell him, and this is true, that that control system I designed for that satellite was the first time I designed a control system." for anything other than a homework assignment. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, listen, when they turn that thing on, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so you might want to, when we launch that thing, when the launch was coming up. And I said, when yeah. we launch that thing, you know, uh, as NASA administrator, you might want to be like deep underground in some bunker or something like that, because who knows what's going to happen. And uh, he said, oh, I, I know where to find you if this doesn't work out. <laughs> so funny. That is so funny. Yeah. They throw yeah. you into the deep end right after those homeworks. Okay, that's good to know. That gives me some motivation to make sure I'm learning it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you better learn it because the next time might be for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how big was your astronaut class? And then what was your relationship like with those people? Were you guys close? Yeah, uh, it was big. I think we had, oh man, I'm going to get the number wrong. It's something like okay. 35 or 36 astronauts. We were the second biggest class ever. So we were the class of uh, 98 and the class of 96, uh, just, just two years prior, obviously, uh, they were the largest class ever selected. They were called the Sardines. And I think they had 44 maybe or something like that. Uh, and they called them the Sardines because they had to pack them into the training rooms, you know, and they barely fit. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. so they got that call sign. So, so they called us the penguins because, uh, because the penguin is a flightless bird, and we knew that we had to wait right. basically for all the sardines to uh, get a chance to fly uh, before our turn would come up. So we had a long wait actually because, uh, for a number of reasons. One, we had all the sardines in front of us. Two, the space station fell way behind schedule. Imagine that, and. Um, and so they hired that those two big classes to staff the ISS, but the ISS program was behind schedule. And so we I was going to ask why they choose so many. Okay. Yeah. And then um, uh, 
so the line wasn't moving as nearly as fast as as predicted. And then uh, the other thing was that we had the Columbia accident right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. So we grounded the fleet for a couple of years. And so we had to wait for that. So I waited. I, I, I didn't fly in space for 10 years. So I, I got selected in 98 and flew my first mission in 2008. And that's much longer than than is kind of typical, but it's because of those those factors. Right. I'm not complaining. Yeah. During those 10 years, I had a great time. You know, I got to fly around in T-38s and I, I did this Nemo mission where I lived on the bottom of the ocean for a couple of weeks. And and uh, uh, there was lots of lots of fun things to do while I was waiting my turn. Right. Yeah. I think the training to me almost sounds like more fun than going up there. For sure. Almost. things don't float so come on (laughs) um yeah yeah so going now you're in space do astronauts ever argue some of my friends were talking about this and how are they handled like how do you professionally you are with these people so often how do you deal with conflict well yeah astronauts do argue uh i was i was very fortunate that all the people i flew with were really spectacular uh I, i didn't have any issues with any of them the closest i came to an argument with any of my crewmates while I was in space would have been uh, with my two Russian crewmates. And it was really more of a um, kind of a, a, a somewhat passionate discussion about operational uh, um, uh, operational thinking, I, I guess, or, or, or different, different operational viewpoints. So, um, so we had this discussion once I remember uh, about whether it's, it's appropriate or not to give the crew uh, the ability to command the uh, launch escape system. So if you're going during ascent as you're launching and the engines are burning, if something's going wrong in the shuttle, we had the ability to say, okay, I no longer want to keep going to space. I want to get down as quickly as possible. In the beginning, I'm either I'm going to fly back and land right at the Cape uh, at, at the Kennedy Space Center. Or a little bit later, I was going to have enough energy and I'm going to go land across the ocean in either Africa or Europe. So I, we had a, the commander had a switch. They could mm-hmm. turn that switch and push a button and make that happen. And then we were all trained to then do all the things you need to do to go from flying up to space to going to land in uh, unexpectedly in Europe or Africa. Right. And the, my Russian crewmates thought that was crazy. Like, how can you have somebody in the vehicle? Because the Soyuz has no ability. For the crew to there's no big red button right the soyuz has an escape system but only automatic sensors or the team in mission control on the ground have have the ability to 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 command it and turn it on the best you can do in the cockpit of the soyuz is ask the people on the ground to please push the button uh that's about all you can do sounds about right yeah and they thought that that was the way to go because you know how can you make a logical and good decision i said it's simple training you know we we train over and over uh uh, to be able to do that and so that conversation got a little bit heated but it's Mm -hmm. not like it's not like we're yelling at each other or anything it was it was was just a a debate with a little bit of a little bit of emotion but it was was pretty minor so that's the closest i came and that's really nothing right well, good. Okay. And you guys are all mature and have been training for this. You must be so prepared to just handle things well. Yeah. And and in the, but in the old days, that's not always the case. I got lucky. There, mm-hmm. there certainly, there okay. were crews that had interpersonal conflicts. We had, uh, we had issues on the ground uh, dealing with uh, one, one member of our team that 
uh, that there was some difficult interpersonal stuff going on. So, so there, there are definitely situations that uh, we got into on the ground or or with other crews in space. It, 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 but in the in the Earth, in the shuttle days, you know, the thing is, and even during the Apollo days, uh, it's not like Neil and Buzz never had uh, you know points of conflict. They sure did. Right. But the thing is, if you're going to be with somebody for like a week or two, you can just count on being professional mm-hmm. and papering it over and getting through it. And and you right. can tolerate pretty much anything for a yeah. couple of weeks if it means you get to go to the moon. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so we never really had to worry too much about it. We just recounted on people to be professional. But then when we started getting into space station and we're talking now about not just one or two weeks, but we're talking about six months you know now over a year you right. can't you can't it, it, that changes everything because now these things that you could deal with for a couple of weeks now become intolerable so you have to you have to do a better and we started doing a much better job of paying attention to these issues and uh screening for them during the the hiring process interesting so what are what are you looking for like screening in the hiring process, like people just being irritable? Uh, well, so we, we what we did was we added a bunch of like team building exercises mm-hmm. and other um, other other little scenarios that we would put the candidates through. And then we, we would observe them, both the members of the selection committee that like myself that were mostly former or mostly current astronauts. And, and also we had, you know, professional advisors, uh, psychologists and NASA medical folks and yeah. um, people that work with high performing teams in the military. So we had a bunch of uh, people help us observe and, and, and give us input. Uh, and, and they were looking at different personality types and, and behaviors. Uh, and um, for me personally, I always felt like there were, there were two red flags I was always looking for. And one of those was, uh, uh, and, and these are the two things I think are, are toxic to the functioning of a, of a good crew. And the first one is uh, excessive ego, narcissism, right? So if right. you have somebody that, where it's all about them and not about the mission, not about the team, that can, that can be completely uh, corrosive. But then also, if you have uh, the, other, uh, the other kind of extreme, if you will, there's one is overconfidence and the other side is, underconfidence or in uh, or a lack of competence right so if you have somebody yeah. on your crew that you can't trust to do their job and you have to do your job well at the same time looking over your shoulder make sure this other person is doing their job uh that that also can can really cause the crew to break down and cause all kinds of problems so so basically i was looking for a little bit of humility and 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 clear uh, competence, but not overconfidence, right? So there's a fine line there, and and that's those are the things I was I was mostly looking for. Interesting. Is this this these tests when you're selecting who's going to fly with who, or is this during like the whole astronaut like? Oh no. Experiment? So what I'm talking about right now is is uh, is during the astronaut selection process. So okay. when you, when, so when you have people interviewing to become yeah. astronauts and you're selecting a new class, now we right. in, in the uh, starting in the ISS years, we started actively screening for these types of things. Um, but uh, we're, we we didn't pay as much, not nearly as much attention to it in the in the shuttle and Apollo era. Uh, so yeah, but but once you're once you're selected and you're assigned to a mission, you have very limited 
ability to choose your in fact that's what i thought yeah, yeah usually you have yeah. zero ability right. to you get who you get and, yeah. which is why i said i was incredibly lucky to get the people i did get because mm -hmm. they were all great and 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 that was just fortuitous um but uh some, sometimes the, the shuttle commanders would have a little bit of leeway and sometimes even iss commanders would have a little bit of input but even they couldn't control who was on the crew they they had to just deal with what they got uh yeah but sometimes they, they sometimes they got to put their finger on a scale a little bit um yeah. so yeah so but 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 one thing is they, the one thing they did do for me for in my case and i think they did this for pretty much everybody is they said okay you can't pick your crew but we know it's really important you're going up there in my case three months uh so you know we do understand that that crew cohesion is really important so you can't pick them but you could give us three names of people you don't want to have <laughs> so you can veto you can have three vetoes right? yeah that's nice that's yeah nice. so i yeah. gave him three names and in retrospect uh this was before i ever served on this is before my first flight so it's before mm -hmm. i ever served on the selection committee but it was that first red flag i gave him three names of the three people i felt were the biggest narcissists in the office because <laughs> i don't i don't want to i don't want to yeah. play with those people yeah absolutely yeah and i didn't so good good they listened great great well, to i'm hear. not gonna name names so <laughs> oh, write them down quick uh so jumping to spacex what was it like to work so closely with elon musk wow this is being recorded right this is being recorded we can have another <laughs> conversation off air <laughs> all right yeah yeah uh oh man so he, he's such a divisive figure now you know it used to be it used yeah. to be different um but that's now, true that's true you can you can't you don't have to answer it too if you want to move on to the next one uh, but it's I'll, always I'll an answer, option i'll answer okay. it, i'm gonna answer it kind of carefully i okay. what i usually tell people now because he is so divisive is like if you love him or hate him uh you're probably right <laughs> <laughs> i like that answer uh so yeah he's got some really admirable qualities and then some qualities i think maybe they could uh stand some improve room for improvement but but the uh but it was he is i'll tell you that on the positive side he he uh is like probably the smartest person i've ever met certainly from a sense of being able to dive so deep on such a broad variety of topics mm -hmm. i've met lots of very very smart people but usually very smart in a particular field or even a, a subset like a particular topic in a particular field what was amazing about Elon was his ability to go extremely deep and hold a conversation uh, at a very, very uh, esoteric level. But, you know, he could turn from having that conversation with a bunch of electrical engineers about the processors in our electronics. And then he could turn around and have a conversation with a manufacturing engineer about some really rare uh a welding process for a very uh esoteric alloy you know so so right. he can go back and forth across the board and 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 participate at such a deep level on so many different topics that i've never seen anybody that can do it as well as he can uh so that that was really impressive i've also never met anybody as determined and with as much drive uh as as he has so yeah um so yeah but, you know, it, it, it's very intense working for Elon. And um, 
uh, you know, it, there were I, there were a lot of sleepless nights, and uh, it, uh, yeah, uh, he's he's not the I, I'll say he's, he's I would say he's not the easiest boss to have. He's yes. extremely demanding, has extremely high expectations. Right, absolutely. So you've lived several successful different career careers before landing at USC. How do you decide it's time to pivot in your career, especially when it's like a hard decision, like leaving NASA or SpaceX? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so first of all, I, I've got, I, I've done this over and over again, where I jump completely mm-hmm. out of my comfort zone. I've noticed. And, and I don't recommend this to everybody. Uh, you right. know, it works for me. And I know other people that that feel the same way, where after a while, things get kind of, I wouldn't say dull, but kind of routine, where you kind of plateau on that learning curve. Mm-hmm. And one way to get back into the steep learning curve is to jump into something completely different, and 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 that reignites the the interest and reignites the the the, the passion to 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 work hard. Um, so I, I've done that. So I went from you know studying business to studying engineering to doing a PhD research on multi-phase fluid mechanics to working mm-hmm. as a guidance navigation control engineer, which had nothing to do with fluid mechanics really. Right. And then uh, becoming an astronaut, which really didn't have that much really to do with engineering, which I studied for all those years because now I was an operator. And um, and then jumping from being an operator at NASA to being a manager at SpaceX to being a professor at USC. So so I had a lot of these big leaps where I had to deal with over and over again that imposter syndrome because you when you first make a, a, a leap like that you can't help but think wow what have I just done wasn't right. this a, did it was this a terrible mistake and, <laughs> and, and 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 why am I here and, and and what made me think I'm qualified to do this and and yeah. so you, you have a lot of those self-doubt and, and questions that come up about like can I really pull this off I remember showing up to work at TRW and like I said almost all my um, education at that point was really on fluid mechanics and I was just dabbling doing homework problems, taking some classes and control theory, mm-hmm. but I, but it was just a, um, it was, it was, it wasn't even a minor. It was just like, I took a few classes. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and here I was, you know, on, on this team with a PhD from MIT Draper labs with a PhD from Berkeley. Uh, and they spent their whole careers, their whole, all their education, got their PhDs in control theory. You know, yeah. they, they were yeah. they, and, and they had built satellites before they they had ex- practical experience, too. And I was just like, like, OK, what I could barely spell P.I.D. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was so. So that's one example. But but I, I've done that n- a numerous times over the course of my career. And for some people that could be they can just crater, you know, in a situation like that and, and is really mm-hmm. uncomfortable and it's not pleasant, uh, uh, and 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 it remains unpleasant. So I don't recommend this to everybody. And, and there are plenty of people who had ex- have had amazing careers staying like on one track. Okay, right. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, some people never get bored and are constantly finding new ways to to make it interesting or learn new things or expand their their abilities, dive even deeper, and or you know this. There's ways you could do that without uh, doing this massive leap out of comfort zones, but 
Mm-hmm. It worked. It worked for me. So I, you know, I don't recommend it to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the growth can be so fun. It's always difficult, but it's then you get bored. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not as fun. Okay, so I'm going to end with the last two questions. I ask everyone these, so make sure they're good answers. Okay. The first one is, what's the most meaningful connection you've made within your professional life, and why? Wow. Uh, I would have to say uh, my crewmates and classmates, basically the, the, my, my fellow astronauts at, at uh, NASA, because yeah. when you go through experiences like that together, either flying in space or there's some that, that, that some that I'm the most close with are actually people I never flew in space with. Mm-hmm. But we did like land survival training together. And we, uh, you know, we, we all went through the Columbia disaster together and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, so when you when you when you are with people really really good people and on top of that you're in these crucibles where where you go through these difficult or 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 intense for either positive or negative reasons uh intense experiences that leads to incredibly strong relationships and and I'm grateful I have those t- today Absolutely do you guys have group chats are there like astronaut group <laughs> chats out there <laughs> You know it's so funny actually uh Actually, just the other day, uh, the STS-124 crew, which was my ride home from my first mission yeah. on Discovery, started a group t- a chat. A group text. Uh, <laughs> That's so what it- funny. What is it named? Like that? STS-124? <laughs> it didn't even have a name, I don't think. I have to check. I have to check. The- I don't think. I don't what think an opportunity. They- yeah, and you're right. I should name it something. No, it's just, it's right. just got the phone numbers on there. You have to come up or with the a name or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I can show there you see right there's there's the names, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my oh my gosh, that's so cool. Mark Mark K is Mark Kelly. Oh my gosh. He texted in this in this look at his brother's book right here. There you go. Yeah. So Mark texted in this text that he was on on an airplane on his way to meet Netanyahu to try to uh help out with what's going on over there. He was on Israel to have meetings with Netanyahu. That's my that's what he put in the group text. And I said, oh, I'm grading midterms. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. That's awesome to see what everyone's doing. Those high achieving yeah. people for sure. Yep. Awesome. I'm so glad I asked that. Okay. And then I told him good luck in dealing with that. I mean, that's. Oh, right. Yeah, I know. But it's anyway. Awful. Yeah. Okay. Last question is advice you'd give your 20 year old self. Hmm. Wow. Well, advice I'll give my 20 year old self is tell your father to get checked for pancreatic cancer. It's oh, <laughs> really depressing. No. But yeah, that's that's oh, the number no. one thing I would tell my 20 year old self. I mean, other yeah. than that, uh, I don't change a thing because I'm pretty happy with how everything turned out. So, absolutely. You know, do whatever you were going to do before you talk to your 55 year old self. Yeah, don't screw it up. (laughs) No time travel. Yes, we know that from all the the movies. If if I was going to go back and talk to a random twenty-year-old, or or I was talking to a twenty-year-old today, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the biggest piece of advice that I I, I would give to to like our students at at USC um, who are about uh, you know about that age, I would say. don't stress all the decisions uh, and, and uh, 
I see so many students trying to plot the opt as an optimization problem, trying to find the right way to go, the right classes to take, the right uh, internships to get, the right company to go work for, and 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 or and, and before that, like the right college to go do, the right graduate program. Right. And there's no the, the main thing to that I try to impress upon them is there's no one right answer to any of those questions. In fact, you're trying to solve a problem that you is inherently impossible to solve because you don't have the necessary data. If you can live two lives yeah. right, and, and, and look at this bifurcation and go out one route and go the other route and uh -huh. then see what happens you know, over the next 30 years, then if you knew all that, then you can make the right decision now. Right, but you you can't. So how do you know what's the right way? And and usually the the uh, a lot of times when you think uh, you're making uh, a wrong decision or something doesn't go the way you want, and you can look back upon that and say, "Wow, that was like the best thing that ever happened to me." And there's right. no way to, to see That's that coming. It's just you got to have confidence that that you know. I, I mean, unless you're like unless you're deciding between like going to getting a graduate degree or pursuing a life of crime, you know, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a right answer for you, you know, yeah. but um, yeah. if you're saying like, I, I remember, uh, I don't want to sound conceited or anything, but I remember going into one of my undergraduate advisors and, and saying, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm stressed out. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know if I, I should go get my PhD from Caltech or MIT. I, have, yeah. I, had, I had opportunities at both places. What should I do? And and and, oh and rightfully God. so, this professor looked at me and laughed in my face. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Which was the appropriate response. Right. You know, I was like, right. Flip a coin. You know, yeah. it, 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 there's no way to know which which mm -hmm. one of those two is going to be better. And yeah. Um, so just you know, actually, the the the, the, the what I the advice I give people when they're really struggling with something like that, where they have two great options, is just flip a coin. Okay. Yeah. And, and and see what, you know, and see if it's heads or tails. And then don't make a decision based on that. But then look at your emotional reaction to seeing the head or the tail. Right. Is your gut emotional reaction like, oh, I'm relieved that it's a head? Or is it, oh, man, that's really, I really, oh, I don't want to see that. You know? right. So so what? how does that make you feel when you see yeah. the head or the tail? And, and, and go and, and let that be your guide. There you go. Yeah. yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, my advice is <laughs> just, just flip a coin. <laughs> that doesn't sound it is though, but listen to your gut. That's what it really is. That's what it yeah. really is. Yeah, it, that's, that is what it is. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, that's all I've got for you. Okay, Paige. Well, Thank you for fun. making time. That was fun. Tell Ulu I say hi. Will do. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Space Spiels. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a fellow space nerd and follow us and rate the podcast. It really helps us out. I'll talk to you next week.